Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what we're doing this time round is another one of our occasional series on Warhammer. So we've covered the foundation of the company when it's actually called Games Workshop. Warhammer is one of its brands. But I've talked a lot about the, the lore as well. I've talked about how they've had inquisitions in Warhammer 40,000 compared to what's an actual inquisition. We've all heard of it. <laughs> Inquisition. I've talked about all kinds of things and a couple of episodes of Warhammer to do with chaos and evil and demons. But that's not the only thing that we actually do here because we also do things on, it could be a pop tune, something like Stand and Deliver and how that's actually got a lot of links to the highwayman past of the world at large, not just England. Or it could be a board game like Monopoly or a movie like Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans. One man, defiantly courageous, stood his ground. It could be all kinds of things. Sometimes I love the stuff, sometimes I don't like the stuff, like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's a wide variety here. If you've turned up for the Warhammer, please check out the other episodes. But if you like this basic format about how we start off with something that's around today, but it's clearly influenced by something from the past, then you might want to check out one of the many many other episodes out there. So what I'm talking about this time around, I mentioned it a little bit in the Gundam episode. It was one of our worst listened to episodes, so you might not have listened to that one. But I'm talking specifically here about armor. But rather with the Gundam thing, I was talking more about things like armored battleships or things like tanks. In this occasion, I'm talking about personal armor. And if there's one thing that is iconic about Warhammer, as I said in the past, there's two basic flavors. You've either got the fantasy world type one called Age of Sigmar, or you've got the futuristic one called Warhammer 40,000. But in both of them, their signature imagery is that of armor. And there's a lot of misconceptions around armor and how it's been used in the past and why hasn't it been used in certain situations. So I'll absolutely get to the history bit a little bit later on. But as always, I'm going to start 
with the good old pop culture stuff. So, as I said in my very first Warhammer episode, the late 70s is when Games Workshop actually starts. And basically, it's its miniature range called Citadel Miniatures. I mean, we've already got multiple brands going on here. Really, we're just there to support other games out there, most notably Dungeons and Dragons. So it's all come down to this, a dungeon and dragons. That made sense. And they started creating their own mythology and they created Warhammer Fantasy Battle, had lots of different creatures in it. I mean, some of them fairly traditional, like orcs and goblins and trolls and dragons, which you would have seen in something like a Lord of the Rings game if you wanted to play that. But they started creating their own stuff too, like Skaven, for example, their rat men. I'm a particular fan of them. But then in 1987, they decided to launch their own IP that truly wasn't linked at last to either Dungeons and Dragons or Lord of the Rings, and that was Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader. That was the name of the original rulebook, and that introduced the world to Space Marines. Now, again, the idea of some futuristic armor-clad person has been around for a long time. I mean, just going a few years earlier back, uh, 10 years before Warhammer 40,000, we've got Star Wars A New Hope coming out in 1977. I felt a great disturbance in the force. And the stormtroopers looked cool. It was their armor that made them cool. Same thing with Darth Vader, same thing with Boba Fett as well. Those helmets, the armor, kind of iconic. Problem is with stormtroopers is they were rubbish. Han Solo, somebody who clearly wasn't some sort of mercenary or some kind of special forces with a little pistol, could just fire it at a stormtrooper and they would fall over and die. That armor wasn't particularly good if a handgun could bring them down. This armor's useless. Why do we even wear it? Modern police armor, body armor, would be able to stop a handgun round. Why is that armor so bad? The other thing about stormtroopers is they could fire wildly and miss their target at all time. Now, there's very good reasons for this in a story. You can't have a bunch of elite, highly capable enemies that outnumber the hero or heroes because they die. And that isn't a very satisfying story. It's very accurate, if you like. So there's been lots of things in the lore of Star Wars about why their armor's rubbish and why they're bad shots. But you're really just trying to write around the fact that, and this is a real phrase that you get in things like screenwriting, plot armor. And there is no greater armor than plot armor. What do I mean by that? It means there are points at which the hero of the story, whoever they may be, could die in a situation and maybe under normal circumstances would die under those circumstances. But on this occasion, to keep the story going, I don't know, the, the bullet deflects or it just misses or, or whatever it may be. They fall out of a building onto a bunch of boxes. So they don't die from the fall. So yes, basically, the fact that the story needs to keep going with this person that's the ultimate armor because you're going to survive. This is why, you know, we, we know something like James Bond when he's sort of like fighting a bunch of villains. Of course he's outnumbered and outgunned, but he's going to get through it because he's James Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. So, same thing with Warhammer. And as I said, so it's not the first time we've seen armor-clad men in space, basically. But with the Space Marines, we have iconic armor. This is now, there are multiple marks of armor, and this is all now to do with the 
the lore and story of Warhammer 40,000. So going back more than 10,000 years, you have the Emperor of Mankind. Cleverly, he doesn't have a name. So this is one of the problems with the Emperor from Star Wars, because we now have his full name. And it's like Palpatine. It's like, that's kind of cool. But, you know, it's better if there's more mystery there. So the Emperor of Mankind, apparently he's been around for tens of thousands of years. Very, very special human. Decides to pull Terra, Earth, together in a unification war. And to do this, he has these genetically bred super warriors who at the time are called Thunder Warriors. And they are wearing Thunder Warrior armor. And that's Mark I. Now, because we're on Earth, even though Earth is slightly toxic then, there's all like toxic swamps and radiation, stuff like that. There's been lots of wars. The armor isn't actually environmentally sealed. It's heavy armor. It's sort of plated. It could absolutely take a shot. But it is the start of the evolution into the space marine armor that we're all familiar with. Then we've got Mark II. This is when he starts going into space to basically build the Imperium of Mankind. And so now they need to have armor that can also act as a spacesuit. So Mark II is the first one that looks like spacesuity armor. And this one's got, instead of one large leg greave, which is the standard thing you'd see in a standard Space Marine model today, it's actually segmented. And the law says that this was the most intricate and actually arguably the best armor out of all of them, but because it was so fiddly, so hard to maintain, it was adapted. And so we get Mark III, which is a more simplified version of Mark II, also quite often has sort of like heavier armor in the chest plate area, so it can be used for assault more. And so we go on and on and on. But the thing is, on the front cover of the first ever rule book about Warhammer 40,000, and indeed the first Space Marines you could buy. You could buy some in, in metal, but you could also buy a whole kit in plastic. They all had pointed face plates. They sort of stuck out a bit. If you know, like the medieval armor of those kind of cones coming out of the front, the sort of like hound armor, as it's called, or hound face plates. And, you know, that's kind of kind of makes sense. It would deflect things. They got nicknamed Beakies because it looked like they kind of had beaks. And even though I left the hobby just before the second edition came out, I didn't know a second edition was coming out. But even in edition one, they started producing Space Marines with kind of snub noses. They'd taken off the beak and it sort of had more like a respirator grill on the front of it. So think, think. Bane from Dark Knight Rises. Now we come here not as conquerors, but as liberators to return control of this city to the people. See, yes, the beaks are iconic. And what they've now done is say, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the you know, Mark VI armor. We're now up to Mark X armor in case you're worried about it. Mark VI is still there. It's sort of like the, the Corvus armor. It's very much respected, yes. It was very heavily used in the Horus heresy. That's the thing that happened 10,000 years before Warhammer 40,000 and is what turned the emperor into a walking, talking human being, epic psyker leader into a sort of like desiccated husk strapped up to machines, barely keeping him alive on the golden throne. So yes, in the Horus Heresy, well, there's a lot of Mark III. Their faceplates look far more like, let's say, a medieval knight. It's kind of got a grill to it. But there's also Mark VI, the, the beaky stuff as well. And there is a soft spot for the beaky stuff. I'm certainly from that generation that remembers it. And I'll let you into a little secret. When they started doing the grills and saying, hey, you can convert your beaky ones into the flatter-faced marines by sawing off, because it was plastic, I could do this, you could saw off the front of the beak, so you're sort of cutting through a cone there, 
and then you apply a little bit of milliput, which is a two-part epoxy resin. Nowadays, they've got something much better called green stuff. What on earth do I mean by that? You've got two tubes of a paste, kind of looks like plasticine. But the thing is, you mix the two together and then, so you really mix them to the different colors and you mix them, you keep pressing, keep pressing, keep pressing, using the modern one about green stuff. What half the strip is yellow, half the strip is blue, and funnily enough, blue into yellow, mix it together, it becomes green. So when it looks green, you know it's properly mixed. And the thing is, it's still pliable like plasticine, for example, but it will harden. Your hard work will remain. And so I remember I chopped off the beak, I put on a little bit of milliput, and then they showed you with a cocktail stick, you could basically score three lines down the front of that, and it looked like a grill. And I remember doing that, and that memory is more than 30 years old. It's amazing how these little things can stick in your head. So yes, Space Marine armor, it's the icon, you know, the, the image. Apparently, Games Workshop as a whole sells more of Warhammer 40,000 than they do of Age of Sigmar. It does vary from shop to shop. In my local shop, it's about 50-50. And the thing is, there's lots of cool stuff in Age of Sigmar. I'm about to go into their armor in a moment, but look, they got the Seraphon, which used to be called Lizard Men. Imagine in an entire army of basically dinosaurs. One's like a big giant humanoid toad that sits on a massive floating throne. That's Lord Croak, and he's amazing. And then lots of the army look like sort of humanoid lizard men kind of things but also they've got big bastilodon type stuff you know so big dinosaurs can also supplement them and pterodactyls as well some of their guys can ride them that's pretty cool that's probably as cool as a sort of bunch of spacemen if you like so if you know nothing about it as people say the rule of cool is really important if you're going to play professionally you need to know exactly how to kit out your forces etc and generally you need to make sure that the person on the figures on the board represent accurately your loadout when you're doing an actual league type thing but those very professional leagues are so rarely attended it wouldn't surprise me of the total people in the hobby one percent do those super professional tournaments and that's fine. If that's the way you want to play, you play that. But the vast majority of people, it's like, look, does it look cool? Is that your aesthetic? It's a bit like the orcs. There are orcs in Age of Sigmar and there are orcs in Warhammer 40,000. Or they're called orcs in Warhammer Age of Sigmar. But the point is, they look like they're having fun. They're probably the only species actually having fun because they like a fight. And they've kind of got a sense of humor. And I like the idea, but they don't like the aesthetic particularly in the Warhammer 40,000, where all their stuff just looks like a pile of debris, like they've been in a junkyard and just slowly bolted it all together. And it's fun, and it means it's great for kit bashing, and I get all that, but it just doesn't scratch that itch for me, so instead I do other things. And on the point of that scratching that itch, the first time I was in the hobby, I loved the Space Marines. They were, they were sort of like the, the most epic, most exciting thing in the game for most people, and indeed to this day, they sell better than any other army out there in Warhammer 40,000. But the thing is, I painted so many of them the first time round that it's the one army I have not gone back to this time round. I mean, since I was last in it, there's an entire army of sort of space skeletons called the Necrons. They didn't even exist when I was playing the first edition. So yeah, I was going to obviously buy some Necron stuff because I just never had it before. And the same thing with the Tau. So I'm not going to go into all the grime and gritty details. Obviously, I'm very excited because I remember the first edition and part of the Imperium, the Imperium of Man. So you got like the normal, just sort of general infantry, the, the Astra Militarum, the Imperial Guard, 
They're just your normal humans in very poor armor and they're basically cannon fodder. But there were also the squats, basically dwarves, space dwarves. You've got the space elves, which are now called Eldari, but the squats, they sort of like had beards and quite often were on trikes and like had cigars and they were kind of like the Hell's Angels. That's the way they were sort of portrayed in the first edition, but they weren't really different enough to the Imperial Guard and they kind of got phased out. I think by the third edition, they basically didn't exist. They were briefly mentioned here and there in the lore, but they weren't really in the actual game anymore. But now in 2022, first trailer on April Fool's Day, just to trick everybody, and then the next day bringing out another one going, no, no, we're serious. What? You thought we were joking? Squats are coming back. Now they're actually called something else now because all everything needs to have sort of like a cooler name, but they'll still be called squats. I know there's some people go, oh, it's really sort of disabledist or whatever. It's like, this is a high fantasy setting. Okay, I, I would never think to speak to somebody with actual medical dwarfism and call them a squat. That's clearly an insult, but that's what this race is. And it's like, sometimes people get really bent out of shape. I genuinely believe you should be as nice as possible to everybody around you, okay? Show everybody respect, okay? I would never think to kill anybody or attack anybody or anything like that, but that's, I'm not doing that in the game. I'm moving plastic figures around a board, okay? And now I've just blown up your spaceship. Yeah, I mean, there, there were people in there. People have died, except this is a made-up thing, you know? It's, it's not real. So I think sometimes people can get so bent out of shape about this stuff. But anyway, very excited to see squats coming back. Yay. But the Space Marines are the poster boys, quite literally, of Warhammer 40,000. And so we come to Age of Sigma. Now, it didn't have a poster boy like Warhammer 40,000. There were lots of different armies with lots of different aesthetics. And one fancy battle... You pick your side, you go for maybe the Wood Elves or Bretonia or the Orcs, whatever. The sort of revamping of this entire Warhammer Fantasy battle was something called the End Times, which sort of wiped the slate clean, started again, and this sort of demigod general called Sigmar, he becomes a full-fledged god and he starts creating his own legions called the Stormcast Eternals, and they're absolutely about armor. Coming on to that in a moment. But the thing about it was that the, particularly the original models for the Stormcast Eternals were sort of so similar in aesthetics to stuff in Warhammer 40,000, particularly things called the Custodes, and also to a certain extent, some like the generals of the Space Marines. They were sometimes nicknamed Sigmarines because they really did look like Age of Sigmar Space Marines. So over the years, they kind of dialed it back a bit and made them more different. But the Stormcast Eternals, with all their different types of leaders and different units, they have become sort of the go-to. I mean, if you're going to start learning Warhammer 40,000, probably get a Space Marine Army. That's a good place to start. They're sort of good at everything, maybe not the best in anything. You're not going to you know, get completely destroyed if you play something like the Space Marines many chapters are available. And it's the same thing in Age of Sigma with the Stormcast Eternals. You can buy a starter box for a very low price point, and it's got things like the Stormcast in it. So yes, they have become the poster boys, kind of whether you like it or not. Even if you do happen to be an Orc player, sorry, it's the Stormcast who get the love and get the posters and things like that. And indeed, the relatively new Warhammer logo is basically a hammer. Warhammer is literally, obviously, the name of the brand, but is a Warhammer is a genuine weapon used in war. 
they don't actually look anything like the fantasy versions. They actually look quite small. They look more like ice picks. They do have a hammer side to it, and then they've got a spike on the other side, but you can't be wielding something around with like a, a brick-sized piece of metal. It would be so heavy, you'd be exhausted, and also it would be flailing around wildly. Admittedly, you hit something, it's gonna go down. That's only if you hit it, and you might only be good for five swings in the entire battle before being exhausted. Anyway, point is, half the logo is a Sigma hammer, and the other half is the eagle from Warhammer 40,000. So it's a clever combination of their two main brands. Also summarizing the brand as a whole, it is actually a very clever logo. I will definitely give them that. So there we are with the wonderful world of the Stormcast. These are sort of new things. They sort of were around beforehand, but nothing like the level of lore and love and miniature range that exists today as I am recording this. So what are they then? Well, what the Stormcast Eternals are, clues in the name there, is they are the great warriors of renown who've been fighting against chaos and they have died. And they've sort of been resurrected not so much as spirits, not so much as reanimated zombies or anything like that, but kind of their spirit has been pulled into some armor. So the armor is animated and inside it there is this spirit of this great previous warrior. Now, originally, the sort of the armor was the person. But as it went along with the books and also they realized that the miniatures, it's going to get boring if all they ever do is have helmets, is they started having miniatures with helmets off and a normal looking head underneath it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
And so they slightly changed the law a little bit to say, yeah, okay, fine. They have to keep the armor on to stay alive. And every time they die, they're kind of reforged, quite literally. And then they sort of reappear in armor and they come back again. Now there's been various moments where various bad guys have separated these Stormcast Eternals from this reanimation ability or reforging ability. And also the thing I really like is every time you're reforged, you lose just a little bit of your humanity. So nobody wants to die. It's not like, oh, dead. All right, start again. New lives. Not at all. It's it's sort of, you'll, you'll still do everything to stay alive. Sometimes they describe it as how the armor gets tighter. They're fusing into the armor rather than being a spirit inside armor. I really like that. I find that quite clever and it also makes them sort of slightly sad as well. So that's the Stormcast and their armor. Look, like with the Space Marines, you can actually paint them lots of different colors because they signify different types of, well, I mean, in the space of Warhammer 40,000, different colors means different chapters, which means different abilities. Sometimes you're a sneaky one. Sometimes you're better at magic. Sometimes you're better at artillery or moving quickly or whatever it may be. So, you know, if you're the White Scars or the Raven Guard or whatever, blah, blah, blah. However, the classic one you will see in Warhammer 40,000 is blue for the Ultramarines because they are the most standard Space Marine, which means some people hate them, call them the Blueberries. If it's not your thing, it's not your thing, but don't start hating on people who want to play Ultramarines. That's that's on them. They, they get to play the game too. You don't own the game. And it's the same thing with Age of Sigma. The most classic one, this is the way I paint them, is with gold armor with sort of blue trimming. So if they've got like a, a blue tabard or something like that, or they've got a tabard, I will paint it blue. I know a way to quickly paint gold and it looks decent. I'm certainly not a, a golden demon type of painter, but I would say I get them to battle ready. In other words, if you see one of my armies on a table ready to go, you're always going to be kind of three feet away from it. I don't paint people's eyeballs. Some people can. It's amazing what they can do. But it looks good. Clearly some effort's being put in. And yeah, I get the idea that those look like little soldiers fighting on a battlefield. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. But that's the best I can do. So all of this is armor, armor, armor. You can see armor is everywhere in Warhammer. Now let's talk about actual armor in real history. So one of the first type of fighters out there were the ancient Egyptians fighting things like the Hittites, for example. And this was at the very beginning of the Bronze Age. So quite frankly, to produce bronze armor would be expensive and time consuming, and the technology might not quite be there to produce later on. So I mean, look, some of the things might be happening 1,500 BC, 2,000 BC, stuff like that. The famous Greek hoplite soldiers who I'll be coming on to in a moment, you know, Spartans 300, all that kind of stuff. This is Sparta! Only they did wear chest plates as well rather than showing all their abs. But anyway, those kind of classic bronze helmets and shields and, as I said, like the, the chest plates and pauldrons and things like that, all that kind of stuff, greaves, etc., that came a thousand years later. So yeah, it, would, it took time for people to get better at the technology. So what you've got with things like the Hittites and ancient Egyptians is they might have a simple wooden shield, or in the case of the Persians, they even had wicker shields. Now, those wicker shields, again, Battle of 300, Battle of Thermopylae, were rubbish against the Spartans. And therefore people say, why? Why would anybody have a wicker shield? Because 
they weren't up against the Spartans all the time. Something like that. A bronze sword was rubbish. It would blunt and dent pretty quickly. You basically needed the invention of iron and steel to start having effective bladed swords. So what most people had was, in essence, a sharp stick, a spear, in other words, or an arrow. Both of those are basically enhanced sharp sticks. They happen to have a bronze end on them to make them a bit sharper but only a bit. So actually, a wicker shield was very light, so you wouldn't get tired fighting, and it would be enough to absolutely entangle an arrow sort of being fired from a short bow. This is way before the invention of things like crossbows or long bows or composite bows, so actually arrows weren't that effective. This is why the Roman legions, they had archers, but they also had people actually using slingshots, because at the time the technology was fairly similar in terms of the amount of damage that they could do. So something like a, it might sound ridiculous, a wicker shield, but actually it would give you enough protection. It would buy you some time while you're fighting the other guy and it wasn't very heavy. Seems pretty logical. But they basically fought without any armor in those situations. There is some evidence of some leather armor. Now, what do I mean by leather armor? I mean, literally, Different types of animal have different thickness of skin, so you can make them thicker in terms of potentially protecting you in some way. So most leather today is actually from sheep, and it's relatively thin. From horses, or indeed cattle, it's much thicker. So you can imagine that armor from something like a, a horse, or, or, or a cow, as I said, if you temper it right, and perhaps put some padding underneath it, again, definitely going to protect you from average blows from Bronze Age weapons. But once you add bronze to it, it becomes almost like an impervious shell. So there's a very brief story about the beginnings of armor, and I've already mentioned multiple civilizations. But then you've got something like the Roman legions marching into Gaul, modern-day France, or, or Britain. The Roman Empire extended from Arabia to Britain, but they wanted more. And there they were fighting Celtic peoples who traditionally wore no armor whatsoever. Indeed, some Celts liked fighting naked. Now, if you think about it, fighting naked means you're very limber, very quick and easy. And let's face it, the difference between wearing a shirt and trousers and being completely naked, there's no difference practically in terms of defense. So if you didn't have the technology for armor, hey, why not go without anything? And the other thing is you might be intimidating the other, other side, particularly if you covered your body in war paint, which again, the Celts were known to have done, you know, try and look scary, covering yourself in woe, this blue paint, sort of famous by the Picts in Caledonia, modern day Scotland. There you've got a situation of Roman legions wearing iron and sometimes steel. They sort of like created good iron, which we now know as steel, by basically cheating using... Creating steel is very difficult, but they were using iron filings, which allowed actually more oxygen into it than you would necessarily need if you had a furnace at, at a level to actually forge steel. Let's not get into the complexities of that. Bottom line, they had iron armor versus guys walking around naked wearing paint. Guess who won? And obviously you've all seen things like the interlocking shield walls of both the ancient Greeks, but also the Roman legions as well. So a combination of personal body armor and a shield made you a very hard nut to crack, basically, to try and come at you. But then... Let's fast forward a little bit and we get things like now. I will never forget, I was at Leeds Royal Armouries filming a potential documentary about arms and armor, and I mentioned, oh, I mentioned chain mail. And the reason why I mentioned chain mail is because as soon as I say it, you know what I'm talking about. But that's not what it's actually called. It's called mail, as in M A I L, mail armor. Now, mail armor 
is an amazing technological advance. It is substantially lighter than even something like the Roman legionaries, kind of the, that, those bands of plates, armor around them. So the great thing about mail armor, I'm going to call it chain mail from now on because you know what I'm talking about, is it's flexible so it can move with you. It doesn't weigh as much and it covers almost the same, almost the same level of protection. Because if I slash at you with a sword and you're wearing that type of armor, it's just going to bounce off all the metal rings. And that's the thing. The reason why it's not a chain is if you think about it, a chain is just a series of links put together. But with the male armor, it's not a chain. It's a mesh. Each individual ring is connected to four or five or maybe six other rings. Now, the cheap one is you just curl a piece of metal round so it's a circle. But the problem with that is there's a tiny gap. And if it gets hit hard, it'll start falling to pieces. The really expensive good stuff is where there's that little gap is it's hammered, closed, and then basically punctured with a little teeny tiny rivet. And so now it's not going to break apart on impact. But of course, you have to do that riveting thousands of times for one suit of the male armor. As I've said in previous episodes, the critical thing with any kind of armor is you basically want padding underneath it. Because if I hit you hard with a sword and you are wearing male armor, and that's all, fine, I'm not going to cut you, but I might be able to wind you or something like that. So indeed, in the Middle Ages, everyone thinks of knights with swords. Well, they might have been fighting in the Middle East against more lighty armored opponents, in which case a sword would be valid. But if they're fighting in Europe, probably a mace or indeed a warhammer would be more appropriate because blunt force trauma works every time, basically. Break the bones, give them trauma rather than necessarily cutting them in some way. And so what you tended to have underneath was a gambeson, a padded jacket to reduce the amount of impact of an attack on your body. But the problem is, A, it's now starting to weigh a lot. And particularly when you had things like the Crusaders in the Middle East, imagine wearing a padded wool jacket, basically a duvet, and then put on top of it metal that will heat up in the Middle Eastern sun, and you're wearing a full face helm you're roasting at that point. Now, you are not designed for that environment. So there's that drawback. But the other thing is that the because there are all these teeny tiny gaps in the male armor, arrows can get through. So what they tended to do, again, thinking of like the, the Crusades, is you'd sometimes get people sort of like recording how sometimes individual knights looked almost like birds because they were peppered with so many of these arrows that hadn't actually punctured them, but were just sort of stuck in them. And of course, that's going to get in your way and make you more cumbersome, etc. So the ultimate mold, basically, would be to get some of those plates of, of armor but wherever they're sort of not properly connected, have some of the male armor there. So you're almost like a walking lobster. And that's what full plate male armor, the absolute pinnacle of what you can get in terms of personal protection, if you like, was like at the time of something like the Battle of Agincourt. In which case, if I can't really get at you, I'm going to need some armor piercing bullets or longbow. <laughs> arrows with a special six inch spike on the end of them smashing into your armor and yeah that'll get you indeed a lot of the peasants and a lot of the archers would have these billocks they were called which is where you get a slightly rude phrase and they were very thin daggers because if you could knock a knight over and they were a bit cumbersome 
actually these suits of armor weren't quite as restrictive as some people think, but they did make you less mobile than somebody who was wearing no armor. And if you could knock one over, it'd be very hard for them to get up again, in which case you'd get that very thin dagger and just jab it into the visor. You'd basically stab them to the, they'd be, oh, they're horrible. You could imagine the people rolling around, they're sort of jabbing away. Also, they might jab underneath the armpits where there was male armor, but again, that very thin knife is going to probably go through the hole in, into your armpit. Horrible, nasty way to die. I apologize for, for the graphic nature of that. But now let's jump over to the East for a moment, because the use of metal wasn't nearly as common in the Far East as it was in Europe. And so, you know, you get the classic samurai armor. It actually has very little actual metal on it, and yet it was about as good as, and indeed a samurai was contemporary to a knight in shining armor. But what that was, was composite armor. It was basically layers of things like leather and cloth and silk, critically. Silk is incredibly hard to break or puncture. Now, I'm not saying it, if you just wear silk pajamas and I punch you, you're not going to feel it. Of course you are. But actually, it's really, really hard to cut. So if you got that with some rigidity, like another layer of something like leather with it, actually these multiple layers, and indeed that's how modern body armor works. Everyone talks about Kevlar. Now, I used to have Kevlar on me when I was fencing, and it's a very tough cloth, but it's not bulletproof on its own. You need multiple layers of Kevlar with perhaps some other things in there as well. And really, it's that composite, that collection of layers that makes it so durable against attack. So that would be your classic samurai armor. But both in Japan and in China, this may sound insane, but they had paper armor. And what that was, again, is multiple layers of you know, something like a, a cotton, not silk, that would be too expensive, but like fabric followed by paper, followed by fabric and another paper. And then the whole thing would be, would basically have a resin poured over it to stop it getting damaged by water or something like that. And something like that, obviously the problem was, as soon as the structure was compromised, the whole thing would start breaking down very, very quickly. And indeed, if it was slashed and then it got wet, it would become useless very, very quickly. But you might have somebody mounted on a horse who like hurls their spear at you. It would be enough to protect you from that one blow. Now, maybe the next blow is going to get you, but it's amazing that you think, oh my God, they sent them into battle with paper armor. They clearly didn't care about their lives. No, it was cheap, flexible, and did enough to help you in those tough situations. So paper armor, leather armor, and sort of full plate armor. But continuing forwards, you then got, you know, you then get into like the Renaissance and you suddenly see a mass reduction of armor on the battlefield. Why? Because of guns. And guns were very good at penetrating anything but the thickest armor. So you might well wear a breastplate and you might well a helmet, but everything else, what's the point, okay? If you get hit in the arm, you get hit in the arm. Tough luck. But even that was getting expensive. And particularly in Europe, as armies grew in size, I've got to feed them, I've got to give them weapons, etc. And to give each one a breastplate and a helmet, it's getting too expensive. So by the time you get into the 1700s, armor on the battlefield has basically faded away because of economics, partly through the technology. Cannon, if you get hit by a cannonball, it doesn't matter how good your armor is, you're dead. And obviously guns and artillery were now key in battlefields, but you still had things like the cuirassiers in France. These were heavy cavalry. I always wondered what's heavy cavalry in the time of like Napoleon? And the answer was they did wear a little bit of armor. Basically we're back to the breastplate and the helmet again. 
And so, yes, they could take more damage potentially than just your average kind of scouting infantry. Oh, sorry, cavalry, I should say, which they actually had the same weapon as the heavy cavalry. But you're going to find it a lot harder to fight the heavy cavalry because, of course, if I'm hitting them in the head, they're wearing a steel helm and that's not going to do anything in that situation. But the heavy cavalry was, wasn't that common on the battlefield. Other types of cavalry were far more common. And it was this ranged attack that was that, that was changing everything because it was going to pierce anything other than the most expensive army armor, and you couldn't have a whole army braced with the very best armor for for all twenty thousand of your troops. It's just not economically viable. So because of that attitude in the seventeen hundreds, now going into the eighteen hundreds, we're at the age of artillery, we're at the age of gunpowder, absolutely, and we're also at the age of accepting there's going to be casualties on the battlefield. And so this continued into World War One, where weirdly, armor started to come back. And you might be going, hang on, I've seen a typical picture of a Tommy in World War One. They're not wearing any armor, but they are. Because at the beginning in 1914, all sides basically wore cloth or leather hats. The Pickelhaube, the famous spiked hat of the Germans, wasn't made out of steel, it was made out of leather. And the British would wear cloth caps, simple as that. But as soon as trench warfare was clearly here to stay, these very nasty air burst shrapnel shells. So you fire the shell and it doesn't detonate on the ground, it detonates in the air and spreads hot, razor sharp shrapnel everywhere. And in which case it will spray down into the trench and if you're wearing a cloth cap, you're dead. And the amount of head injuries that were being impacted on all sides in World War I because of trench warfare led to the invention of, in Britain at least, the Brody helmet, that classic semi-spherical middle bit with the sort of brim round the edge. Perfect when you're cowering in a trench and something detonates overhead. That will cover most of your outline from above, if you like. So it was the perfect relatively like com compromisable armor for World War I, which indeed the British even used in World War II. The Americans changed their style with this steel helm of the Germans. The World War II one was exactly the same, only actually slightly smaller in design, but identical overall in, in look. And so, yes, so you've now got in World War I and World War II, you've got a little bit of armor, and obviously you've got things like much greater ranges of weapons, and obviously you've got things like literally armored units, like tanks being the classic one, but armored cars and armored personnel carriers and things like that as well. All these things now existed to try and protect infantry. You could hide behind a tank, even in World War I. You know, that's why they didn't really go faster than six miles an hour, because the infantry wasn't going to go faster than six miles an hour. So all the infantry sort of like huddled behind the tank as the tanks rolled against the enemy machine guns, and the enemy machine guns were just going to bounce off the tanks. It was a brilliant, elegant solution to the problem of trench warfare. And so that continues into the post-war era. The Korean War is perhaps the last time when nobody was basically wearing armor apart from helmets. But by the time we get to Vietnam, we start getting the idea of flak jackets and some bulletproofing around the, the chest area again, almost like the, you know, the breastplate again. And obviously they're well wearing helmets because now, because of television and film, casualty rates weren't as acceptable as they used to be. And so, there was just more need to protect our troops. And by the time we get to things like Afghanistan and Iraq, everybody's wearing helmets and everybody's wearing body armor. And indeed, there have been instances which have sort of like led to sort of court cases, actual sort of like arguments by parents of bereaved children. Now, these soldiers died because 
They had to give, you know, they had such little body armor. They had to give it to somebody else. An incredibly brave, noble moment. And then they get hit and then they die. And the argument there is, is basically the army should give you, I mean, the, the reality is in war, people die. But we just don't want people to die anymore. And therefore, we're now criticizing armies for not properly protecting our troops, which is, don't get me wrong, I think it's absolutely right. But it just wasn't a consideration a hundred years ago. It's like just an acceptance of we will have to send, people will die taking that hill. We'll have to send them there. They've got helmets and that's it. So yes, yeah, so now in the modern world, there is quite a lot of armor on your modern soldier. So we've gone basically through 4,000 years of armor technology, and yet we're sort of almost back to the beginning again, not quite. Obviously, modern armor, because again, they're using these composite materials, isn't nearly as heavy as like full plate armor of the Middle Ages. But again, your soldier today, it's there to protect them key organs. Sometimes they basically have these sort of like groinal flaps to sort of protect uh, your family jewels, Jem said politely. And then obviously there's the body area protected and then there's the helmet. But if you get hit in the arm or leg, there's zero protection apart from your clothing. So it's not quite as encased as you were during, let's say, the Hundred Years' War, for example. So all of this can absolutely be seen from Warhammer because armor is so important there and it's still a conversation in the battlefields of the 21st century today. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, look, as always, I want to say this. Please, please, if you can give us a review, that'd be great. If you could tell somebody about us, that would be great too. And the other thing is, every Tuesday, I send a little link out saying, hey, this is the latest one. I occasionally tweet out, hey, you might have not seen this one or listened to this one. Uh, it would be great. I'm at Jem Daducci on Twitter. You can give me ideas. I, I've done ideas for people. I take requests. But also, the other thing I'm, I would love you to do is spread the word. Thanks very much. And as always, hopefully, speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.